Welcome to PostStatus Draft, the official podcast for PostStatus, a website with news and information for WordPress professionals. Today, Brian Richards and I talk about marketing tips and tricks and all sorts of stuff related, especially in regard to WordPress products and services, but we do apply it to kind of life in general. So this is a deep dive into all things marketing from conversion funnels to things that we think people can do better on their websites to giving examples of what people are doing well already. And a lot of WordPress specific stuff like having a free plugin on the .org repo and whether that's a good or bad thing. Uh, if you enjoy this podcast, you can get more quality news and analysis from the Post Status Club at poststatus.com slash club. Today, I'd like to feature one of our partners, SiteGround. SiteGround is engineered for speed, security, and crafted specifically for WordPress. Get feature-rich managed WordPress hosting with premium support. And by the way, SiteGround is officially recommended by WordPress.org. I've been a SiteGround customer for, I think, more than five years now, and they have been great to me for all of that time. Go to SiteGround.com slash PostStatus to see special deals for PostStatus Draft listeners. Now, here's our show. Hey, everybody. I'm Brian Krogsgaard, and I'm the editor of PostStatus. And I'm Brian Richards, the owner and operator of WP Sessions. Welcome to the PostStatus Draft Podcast. Today, we're going to discuss sales and marketing around WordPress products and plugins in particular. So buckle up. Buckle up. Uh, this is everything from how you... Uh, market and pitch yourself to potential customers, raise awareness to potential customers, to uh, onboarding them, that kind of thing. Brian and I have already been talking for an hour and a half today, (laughs) so we decided we should do a podcast. Um, Brian, what is the first thing that you think about when you say, hey, I need to solve this problem in WordPress? Do you think go ahead? that I need to find a solution to the problem. And sometimes my first instinct is I can build this because it's only going to take me a few minutes. Mm. And a lot of times that instinct is wrong, as I'm sure it is with most developers, of I can, I can solve this. Truer wisdom is to say, I bet someone else has already solved this. Let me go see what they did. Mm-hmm. So I feel the same way except for I've gotten much better over the years in realizing that I do not need to solve most problems in life myself and that someone else has probably done it. One of the things that is a frequent challenge when I'm looking for the solution is I have a hard time finding out uh, whether the proposed solution is actually going to solve my problem. Um, so I think I would start there, being that when you when someone when you're pitching someone on your website for your solution, it would be to quickly and efficiently state the problem to give confirmation to the person looking for the solution to the problem that your problem is shared. And then as quickly as possible, share how you can solve that problem. Yes. So you, for those of you who are selling products or attempting to, what you need to realize is you are selling solutions to problems, which means that all of your copy should support that end and promote the benefits of using your solution and what problems your solution is actually solving. Nobody cares about how fast your thing is unless the problem you're solving is one of speed. Mm -hmm. Nobody cares about the code that's under the hood because if you've done your job well, they will never need to actually look at it. What they want to know first and foremost is, does this thing solve my problem? 
Yes or no. If there's a differentiation between you and a competitive product, then maybe establish that quickly if it's like important for solving that problem. Like if you're solving something in a fundamentally different way than another player in the landscape. Do you have a good example of a product that you think does this well and quickly? I do, actually. Um, Our friend Jonathan, who runs SearchWP, uh, does this really well in like the very first headline on SearchWP. It says, uh, I'm trying to remember from memory here, I think it's... uh, WordPress hides content. Search WP finds it instantly. Yep. And he actually has a checklist of the stuff that WordPress uh, indexes versus does not index, which is, you know, he puts a big list of things that he indexes that WordPress by default does not and does the X marks on the WordPress side and the check marks on the search WP side. But very quickly, he establishes that you can search all these things in WordPress with search WP that you can't do without it. And then his secondary thing is to say, by the way, you do this without code. And he shows a screenshot of what the interface looks like of doing so without code. Yeah. And every other headline on this page, as you continue to scroll down the homepage, just further supports the benefits of of the tool. It doesn't say this is completely written using Vue.js for a very snappy admin interface. doesn't mention that at all. It says, right, you can also find e-commerce stuff. And by the way, you can set up these kinds of behaviors. And so it's, it's very quick to show you what the benefits are and how easy they are to use without getting in the weeds of uh, implementation details, except to show that there aren't many, um, or into the, all of the different technical things. There is information about all the technical aspects of the plugin on the site for developers, which is an important thing to include because you're likely attracting a developer to help make the technical decision for a site owner. But the homepage is to sell the person who should be using the product, not the person who is implementing it. And I think he does a really great job there. Yeah, so you're giving the customer an option to go deeper and find the technical information they're seeking. But by default, you're informing the regular user who's not concerned with all that stuff. And I think that's the right approach that a lot of people do get wrong because um, when you have someone that knows the type of thing they're trying to differentiate uh, between you and someone else, like maybe it's based on the fact that you have an API, for instance, they're going to know what to look for. So they're more willing to hunt down that style of information or be able to find it based on a subtle hint rather than an in-depth or highly marketed portion of your pitch. Whereas your typical customer is is going to want to know, what's the problem? How do I solve it? And establish that very quickly. So it's just worth worth mentioning SearchWP as a a good example of a site that I think does this very well. one of the next things that I look for when I'm look, finding a product is I would call it social proof in two ways. So one is other people, testimonials, that kind of thing that support your product and enjoy your product. And then actually linking, if it's an interactive product, linking to their websites where they're using it, I think is very valuable. The other social proof that I find extreme value in, and I see this uh, problematically on a lot of WordPress products or products in general, is when you go to an about page or try to find an about page and you can't find who is behind this thing, I am much, 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 much more likely to trust a product when I see a name and a face attached to it in terms of who runs it. I agree. Um, 
And, and it's to pick, not essential, to, but go ahead. It's not essential, but it's very helpful. Yeah. And to pick on Jonathan, I'm pretty sure two, three years ago, something like that, when Search WP was newer, he didn't have this. And I was like, man, it took me a while to remember that this was your product because <laughs> I couldn't find your face on it. Um, and now he has a, a very nice one. And this is not meant, we're not, we're not intending to overly promote Search WP or give him a hard time, but um, I think we both do like Search WP and uh, Search WP is a partner of Postatus, so it's just a good example. And this is not a 300-person organization, which is the other reason I like it as an example. Uh, you know, Jonathan runs Search WP by himself and maybe with some contractors to help him out with support and stuff. Yep. Um, so this is possible no matter what level you're doing things on. Yeah. I think what might be useful here for one other fictitious example is uh, is to say let's let's pretend we were creating and releasing a plugin for building interactive quizzes. Mm. The homepage for that, the the main headline, in my opinion, should be something along the lines of create your own interactive quiz in under two minutes, for instance. The, the benefit there that we're, that we're promoting is that it is very fast and therefore very easy to make a quiz using this solution. A supporting subhead might be something along the lines of, and choose from over 20 different uh, question types. Hmm. And so right away in two sentences, we've established that this tool is fast and easy to use, and it has a variety of the kinds of questions that we can ask in our quiz, which would infer, even without listing any, that I should probably be able to do a checkbox, a radio, a Likert scale, a whole bunch of different kinds of things that will likely meet all of the needs that I have. Um, I may come back to this example more than once throughout the the rest of this episode because it provides a a nice tangible thing that we can relate these uh, these concepts to that aren't just always promoting other existing one of our tools. <laughs> right, yeah. one of our friends. Uh, another another website that I think does a good job of sending the potential customer down the rabbit hole they prefer to send them down is. Uh, WooCommerce does this as example, so we could do it in our example, in that after they do the initial pitch, after they do social proof of here's where it's used, they have a big landscape tab, and it has store owners on the left and developers on the right. So it will then initiate a different sales pitch based on who's reading it, so that the developer will click on read more, and they'll see a pitch for developers, a whole sales page, perfectly meant to... Uh, cater to the developers that are looking for this thing. And I think that's a really nice way to go at it if you have a technical product, but that's also a a heavily user-facing product, is to funnel the potential customer into the right avenue. Bingo. Now, you said a magic word there, funnel, which brings a, a very beautiful visual metaphor to the marketing process. And you also happen to have given a presentation about marketing funnels at uh, WordCamp US a few years ago. Can mm-hmm. you talk a bit first, what, what is a funnel as a very basic description? And what would you quantify as like four distinct areas of the funnel process? Yeah, so my presentation was on um, creating compelling products, but that was in the sense of essentially 
walking a customer through the funnel. Uh, when I say funnel, I mean you want the customer to take step one, step two, step three, step four to eventually become your customer and then be your customer. And I actually, in that presentation, I established, uh, I think, three different funnels. So one was turning them into a customer. One was once they are a customer, how to like turn them into the type of customer you want. <laughs> and then the third was to a funnel to turn them into someone recommending you and all that kind of stuff. But the primary funnel is how to turn them into a customer. And there's four distinct steps, I think. And the first is awareness. So whether you're bringing them in based on referral or an advertisement or organic search, whatever that is. And then there's peaking their interest uh, as the second stage, which is what we just talked about, like peaking the interest in by displaying or displaying what the problem is and how you're going to solve it. And then desire is building up their uh, building up the momentum, I guess, in the in the pitch. So you're as you work your way down the page, I guess is a good way to put it. Or maybe if you have a pitch video, like halfway through the video, you're you're like reinforcing and establishing the initial problem and how to uh, how to drive them towards action. And the act of uh, purchasing, signing up, converting is the the fourth to actually become that customer. And in order to act, you have to have an action item. So that's a button to click or to buy or whatever and making sure that that whole process is working well. So that's kind of the conversion funnel. And this is not something I invented. This is something that I adapted to a WordPress landscape. Yeah, conversion funnels are very popular in the marketing world because they describe, as I said, very very visually what it's like. You, you start with a very wide body of people at the beginning, and then each step, the number of uh, potential customers you're talking to narrows as you go from uh, being completely unaware to now we have at least some basic awareness that your product or service exists to, yes, I'm interested in it, to yes, I want it, to now I have it. Mm-hmm. And, and some of these different tools like social proof with testimonials and you know who's the, the pedigree of the person behind the product, that kind of thing, that's part of creating desire. You know, so you're you're building up the tools within that funnel. Um, and inevitably to get them to the action point. Yeah. Um, you mentioned something very special and powerful as you're walking through those steps, and that was uh, reiterating the problem to mm-hmm. your potential customers. And this is huge that I don't see played out in a lot of uh, WordPress plugin sales pages. Uh, th- they do get to it, uh, it's a, and it's usually spelled out in the facts, the, the FAQs of, does it do this? What if I have this? And then they have conveniently provide an answer there. What's better is to uh, address these problems in your main sales copy. Have you ever had this happen? Here's how our product solves that problem. And you'll never experience blank again. Um, Backup Buddy did this really well a number of years ago. I'm not sure if it's still on their sales page or not. I haven't looked in recent history uh, because I basically I bought the lifetime plan as soon as it was available to me because I knew it was going to be a useful product forever. But they they had this calculator for how much is your data worth how much would you have to spend recreating all of the data on your site if you suffered a catastrophic failure right now? And that is a really great way to focus on the problem. If you lost your site today, how much are you actually losing in time, in dollars? Our plugin prevents that from happening because you have a backup always available. Boom, yeah, that- done, sold. Where's the buy button? Yeah, I like that. Uh 
I don't even know what you would call that necessarily. Like your risk reward maybe for not using the product. And especially if it's a safety product, that's a great way to go about it. Yeah. The other uh, convenient thing about reiterating the problems, uh, there, there are a few things. One is you get to shape the narrative of the sales process. You get to guide your customers through and sort of address the questions before they even have them. Um, I learned about this tactic a little bit uh, in college. I had friends who were selling Cutco knives, and they were trained to sort of propose questions that answered things that their prospects hadn't even thought about yet. Phrasing like, um, can you see how this feature would be useful? Or can you, can you imagine yourself, um, how do they say it? Can you, can you imagine um, how much better this is going to be as you're using the knives or, or things like that? It's basically putting the idea in their head of, here's how this solves a problem that we know you have that you haven't even begun to think about yet. And it's mm -hmm. just adding more benefits, more reasons to want what the product is. On the web, this is like a very calm and less weird version of like boardwalk pitchmen. <laughs> exactly. Uh, where, you know, you're walking by and you're like, and someone with the knife example, they're like, you know, slicing paper or whatever the thing is. And you're like, wow, like I need a knife that can slice paper like that. When and no look, one now they're cutting the head paper. off of a hammer. And now <laughs> yeah. they're going right back to tomatoes. They probably should have washed it first, but whatever. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure you need to be that aggressive, but reiterating just how good your thing is at something or even above and beyond the desired, uh, use case can be very effective. Yep. It's uh, also good are, for, um, uh, search strategies, right? Because people who are searching for the problem, how to solve blank, if that's part of your copy, guess what? Now they've found your product while trying to search for a solution to the problem that they actually have at hand. Yeah. You mentioned with Backup Buddy providing value by giving the price and then comparing that to um, the time saved. So they're they're creating a value so that then when they present the price, they are able to uh, essentially make it seem cheap, uh, relative. Yes. Another way to do that is to have multiple options and essentially establish bracketing for the price zone that you want the customer to pay. And the way that you do that is to have one plan that's super expensive, one plan that's not near that expensive, and then by default looks cheap. So the there's one classic example of this, which would be like if you're buying a beer, you know, they have the uh, domestic dollars is imported. Domestic versus import versus like some random super rare beer that's $10 and it makes the $6 beer look cheap in comparison. And then there's always the $3 beer that you don't um, want them to buy. And like you essentially are guiding everyone towards the middle. That's a classic example. I experienced one recently that I thought was really brilliantly done. Um, and in an industry that probably is very, actually I know is very competitive. And the way they did the pitch, I just sat there and I did exactly what they wanted me to do. But I just sat there in appreciation of how it was designed to guide me through the process and to essentially point me to what is probably their most profitable item. Um, so this, I was at a mattress store and I know, uh, mm -hmm. you know, people have Varying opinions on ma mattress stores. Mattresses have become like one of the most popular ship it to me and return it for free 
type of box items. Um, and I don't want to be their advertiser here, but everybody's heard the mattress podcast commercials. I was really impressed going to the store, the way he took me through the cycle, because they take you to the back. We were getting a mattress for my son. So it's just a twin mattress, just a simple mattress is all we were getting. And they have them in a line, almost like books on a shelf, vertical. And they pull them out one at a time. And they're like, okay, well, here's here's our um, baseline mattress. And it's like $200. And they put it down. It's like, you know, real thin, real springy. And he's like, but this is really like, you know, for this certain application, you probably don't need that. Here's a really expensive mattress. And it's like 18 inches thick. And it's this massive mattress that's so overkill for a 25 pound kid. <laughs> and, um, and then they're like, and here's our, uh, midline mattress. These, you get the same warranty you get on the high end mattress. So like you're basically equating benefits here. You get the same benefits. And, um, by the way, it's two thirds of the price. And, you know, this one is actually last year's model, which having yearly models for mattress is hilarious. So you get an additional $100 off. So he's in, he's established the deal for me because he's bracketed. Let's say the middle one is 400 bucks. I don't remember what the exact pricing was. So you have the cheap one, 200 bucks. That's garbage. You would never buy that. Like it's visibly garbage. The expensive one that's $800. It's literally a bag of garbage that he pulled out from the trash can. <laughs> yeah. We can the flatten expen- this out for you. Then you have the expensive one that they don't expect you to buy, but there's a sweet additive there coming up and then they're like, but look at this one that has the same warranty, but it's $400 uh, and another, you know, whatever discount off of that, t- say 10%. So you're getting this one for half the price of that one, plus a discount just because this is last year's model. And it's like, bam, they've put, they've snuck you in there to where there's one obvious decision. And that is the middle of the road where they probably have great markup on that mattress with the added benefit that there is always a customer that's going to come in. And even though they see the middle one, that's the, where the value is. That's where they know they want you to buy. And because they've compared it to the cheap mattress, it's not, uh, not that much more expensive, the expensive mattress that it's very similar to in quality, but it's so much cheaper. They've bracketed you to that middle of the road line. There are some customers that will always buy the most expensive one, even though they got the pitch that steered them right to the middle. So with whatever percent of your customers, let's say 10%, they're going to choose the most expensive one anyway. And then you've hit the, the, the jackpot. You've got the customer that always wants the best, no matter what. And you've charged them double for something that offers little more value. And that is perfect bracketing, in my opinion, that you can also imitate on the web or anything. Yeah, that's, that is the perfect setup for how bracketing works. The, the original example with iThemes and Backup Buddy and showing you here's what it would cost to lose your data versus cost to protect it, uh, to circle back on that real quick, that's anchoring. You say, here's what the solution is worth to you. Now here's what we're actually going to charge you for. You've anchored them to one price and shown them another one. And then bracketing is what Brian just brilliantly described as here are a few options. So you know the low end, the high end, and you probably want the middle, unless you are the customer who's always driven to buy the most expensive thing. And then you just go for whatever that is. Uh, A fun anecdotal fact, bit of trivial knowledge for anybody who appreciates that. Every mattress store you'll notice always offers the lowest possible prices. Nobody can beat our price. And there are, in my small town, multiple mattress stores, which blows my mind that that even a small town could support more than one mattress store. But there are usually like three or four. I haven't bothered to count them, but I, I can look down one street and I can know that there are at least 
three mattress stores that I could go to on that one street. So how do they get away with always being able to offer the lowest pricing, all three of them being able to make that promise? It's because the suppliers, and they're all getting supplied from the same mattress manufacturers, um, they each get a slightly different variation on, on the same mattress. And it's not even like a, a material difference. It is the quilting pattern, the, the pattern of the fabric used for the mattress, and just itty-bitty tiny like aesthetic And this is a mattress that goes underneath a sheet. <laughs> yes. Know, like, this is not and you'll, visible. You'll never see those features except on laundry day for the few minutes it takes as you have gotten one set of sheets off to put the next set of sheets on. And so because of these minor differences, no two mattress stores in the same town are actually technically selling the same mattress. They have different names and therefore are different. And therefore you will not be able to price match against them and find a lower price anywhere. Yep, absolutely. So hey, let's a take a break and talk about someone else that's doing some good bracketing uh, and some good value pitching. And they've been doing this for a long time. They've, they're a fantastic example of marketing in our space, actually, to the degree that I'm going to link up in the show notes a talk that their marketing director did at PostSize Publish a couple of years ago. And that is our partner for the episode, who is SiteGround. And if you go to SiteGround.com slash status, you can see an example of someone who has done these things that we've discussed today very well. And to back it all up, they have a great product. So I'm happy to recommend SiteGround. They are a post status partner. I've used SiteGround hosting for, I don't even remember how long now, like five plus years, I think. Um, you can get up to 65% off uh, as a post status draft listener. They bracket their pricing from $395 to $1045 on the post status deal. But they have the three options, just like we pointed to. They have some really neat little things that they've done here to make these more advantageous. I will note, their, so their middle tier is perfectly reasonable for most customers, including me. I could totally support the sites that I use with their Grow Big plan. Yet, I have the Go Geek plan. So I am the guy that I talked about like that just got the more expensive one anyway. Uh, and they do a great job of showing excellent marketing. Um, I like to see the way they've done this and what they do is worth it. So I recommend SiteGround and it works nicely into this episode because it's another good example of good marketing and great bracketing. And it's a great product to back it up. So thank you to SiteGround for being a post status partner. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, their, their bracketing is great. They also do something that I like, which is putting like a different color or like something to no something to push you in addition to the plan that they really want you to buy. Yes. Um, and that feeds into the point that I was just about to make. We are in sync on this. Um, when you are providing bracketing and different pricing strategies for your customers, it's extremely important that you don't give them too many decisions and you make that decision-making process as simple as possible. Too many because, options, you mean? Right, yeah, sorry, too many options. Or decisions to make. Right, decisions to make. Um, because you will quickly create decision fatigue and then instead of picking one option, they will pick no options. There was a really great TED Talk on this that I watched a bunch of years ago that I'll have to track down and add to the show notes where the the presenter points out just how crazy it's become even just buying blue jeans. They'll go into a department store to buy uh, a new pair of jeans. And it used to be, all you had to do is pick your size. Now you have to pick your size, your cut, your style. And whereas he had 
like two pair to pick between in the past. He now had something like 20 pair to pick between. And he's just like, I'm out. I'm just, there's too many, too many uh, options, too many decisions to make. So try and narrow your decisions. Uh, three is good. Four is okay. More than that, you should reevaluate. Mm-hmm. And in picking and presenting your different options, you should make the value proposition between each bracket uh, very clear. So at the baseline, you get this. In the middle tier, you get everything at the baseline plus these three things. In the upper tier, you get everything from the middle tier plus these three more things. So it's and, it's very easy to see. Oh, yeah. Tr- here's what try to make is. that stand out quickly. And hosts are a really good example of you see the best and the worst of this. Um, I like, for instance, on SiteGround, since I was just on this page, they. I mean, you do have to put a certain amount of technical information for a host when you're deciding between plans. So they have three or four like check marks of what you get with this plan and that plan. And um, but it's it makes it very clear like you get this or that, like one website versus multiple websites, for instance. Um, but in terms of instead of digging into every like nerd feature that a host can tell you they have, like and that they support, what they do is they have an overlay so that if you hover over geeky advanced features, <laughs> which is what they call it, like keeping it in layman's terms. But then when you actually hover over that, then it says, okay, well, we have PCI compliance and, you know, all this stuff and Git repos and staging the types of things that a developer is going to want to see, but you're not cluttering the page for someone that doesn't care about all that. And Bingo. that's a, a really nice way to do it. Yep. And then the the last point on this, it's actually the first point that you mentioned of suggesting to customers which plan is right for them, saying either this is our most popular or this is the best value, giving them something to see like, ah, okay, of these three plans, I probably want the second one here. And you can do that by adding color, by adding a little banner, a little something to indicate, right? This is the plan that you most likely want. And if you can't provide them that, if if it really is sort of a choose your own adventure and there's not one plan you want to guide them to, it's extremely important that you have already decided and have a good uh, good way to demonstrate which plan is right for each person. And you can do this by giving the plan a useful name and by uh, by giving the customer enough information so that they can self-identify and say like, ah, yes, this one is me. And what do I mean here? Well, a lot of plans are usually different based on the number of seats or the the amount of things that you can use, right? So this in the WordPress space, it's how many sites do we support? You can get one for a single site, one for five sites, one for unlimited sites. Um, for services like an email-based service, like newsletter, like MailChimp, it's here's how many emails you can send in a month or how many subscribers you're allowed to contact in addition mm-hmm. to how many emails you're allowed to send. Um, With one GPL pro- products, that's a little tricky. Right. Uh, because you're really offering multiple sites for support and access to updates. You're not, you can't prevent someone from using code on multiple websites because that's against the GPL. Right. Nor would you want to, most likely. But if you're, if what you're selling is a companion service to something, there you're selling it based on real limitations to access to the hardware that you're running. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're, if, if you end up trying to create your buckets based on, how much of the service a person is going to use, that is a very difficult decision to make, to know in advance, 
I don't know how many servers we're going to need or how many visitors are going to be using this. Um, it's hard for them to self-select on something like that unless you can give them a, a tool, some way to calculate that. Um, I don't think that's a lot of people in the WordPress space, but I do want to point that out. I read a really good collection of um, pricing feedback that Stripe Atlas published just, just last week, I think, or maybe it was even just this week. Um, we'll link that in the show notes as well. Basically, a, a person from Stripe uh, gave f- pricing feedback to a bunch of different companies, but 10 of them agreed to, to have the details of the feedback and the before and after sort of published. So it was awesome. very illuminating. Uh, there is one thing that's very WordPress specific or web app specific that I think a lot of people miss that I think is really valuable, which is providing um, at least some visual representation of what your product's going to look like once it's installed or activated or whatever. And that could be anything from screenshots of the admin interface uh, to a full demo or something. I have seen people note that if you offer a full demo, their conversions have gone down, but at least at least giving a hint of like, what am I going to see once I install this? If it's a, like a WordPress plugin is really valuable. And a lot of people don't do anything like that. So then it's essentially you're converting, having no idea what you're about to see. And then it's a mystery once you get in there. And then there was another element of that. Oh, uh, time, like you're proving your commitment. So uh, how long have you been in business? If you've if you've been doing something for a long time, being able to highlight that on your website is really a nice feature because you say, hey, we've already been doing this for three years, so you should be able to rely on us for doing it the next three years or five years or seven years or 10 years as some some of the businesses in the WordPress landscape are. Offering that to- that sort of longevity is going to be really valuable, especially for the type of tool where it's super valuable to last a long time because you don't want to be replacing it in two or three years. Like if your whole site relies on it. Yeah. The assurances and guarantees that you can provide to customers will help conversion so much. So Mm -hmm. making, providing a money back guarantee so that there's zero risk for them to open their wallet right now is a big deal. And then including lots of other confidence inducing uh, badges alongside your sales page uh, in particular, your checkout page. Basically, anywhere that you've got a buy button and anywhere that you've got the final complete order button, you should include something that induces confidence that uh, we offer a 100% satisfaction money back guarantee. Yeah. And we've got you know SSL certificate, 256-bit encryption ready to go, turned on. You can confirm it all. Even though you know that that's a requirement for running the e-commerce store, even though the person buying it, it, it is likely a developer, knows, it's always reassuring to see that. Uh, so hey, I have a question um, for you. Yes. About you mentioned about you know every time you have a sales button or something or, or a, add a cart, whatever it is. Do you tend to buy something or be con- convinced of something better? if there's lots of buttons to make the purchase or take the call to action, or if you like have to scroll down through the whole pitch to find the call to action. And then there's just one. So essentially it's the way I view that is it's making you hungrier and hungrier and hungrier for the, for the final button as you go down. So are you a better, are you an advocate of add to cart on every element of the pitch or add to cart at the very end? So what you've just described 
is a long form sales page, which mm-hmm. is a tried and true and well uh, well tested mechanism for selling something to a completely uninitiated visitor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do not do well converting on those pages. I believe it's it's hard. Like nobody likes being sold to or likes realizing that they were sold. But all of us have been sold on all of the things that we own and enjoy. We wouldn't have bought them if someone didn't sell us on the the benefit of having them. And those are largely emotional decisions, mm-hmm. regardless of how logical you wish to be, and I wish to be very logical. But the fact is most of our buying decisions are emotional. And long-form sales pages uh, appeal to these emotional reactions. And for the most part, they are serving as the entire funnel, right, from you first becoming aware of the thing to helping build interest to then building desire to then causing you to take action. They're trying to do all of that on one page because they've realized they only have your attention for just a short period of time, courtesy of some um, paid However advertising that they've done. Um, and so some do include a buy button at multiple steps or at least an an anchor link to take you down to the bottom of the page where the buy button is. Already convinced? Let's get started. Um, that's how I like to design things so that when someone has decided like, yeah, I'm ready, where's give me the buy button, they can jump to it. The sites that don't and the argument against that is you need to sufficiently convince somebody that your product is worth the price that you're charging. And if you give them quick access to see the price, they're going to split. Whereas if you spend enough time convincing them, they may be ready to spend that much by the time they get to the end. If someone were to say to you, hey, Brian, I'd like to sell you a mattress for $400 right now. I don't know about you, but I would be unlikely to say, yeah, let's do it. Whereas they took you through the process at the mattress store. Here's our $200 pile of trash that I literally pulled out of the dumpster. Here's our $1,600 mattress that your child is only going to enjoy for a few years. Or you can get all the same benefits for a $400 mattress. You go, wow, actually, that I definitely don't want a pile of trash. And I'm pretty sure anywhere I go is going to try and sell me a pile of trash for $200. So I guess $400 is where I'm going to be. Mm-hmm. And it worked. Yeah. So... I personally um, prefer shorter sales pages, but I have the benefit of being able to do that. Like on my on my session broadcast pages, when people are registering, I can have the buy button right at the top because for the live broadcast, it's free. And to get the recording, it's really inexpensive. It's nine bucks if you buy it before the broadcast. And it's 19 bucks if you buy it afterwards. It's not a, a real... Uh, a real heavy decision that someone has to make. And typically they've landed on my page because they've already said, I want to learn about this topic. And so it's just a matter of saying, yes, this is indeed the topic that you wanted to learn about. And here's the button for you to start learning it right now. Yeah. I'm also an advocate of at least the option of skipping to the buy button and then the pitch and then the buy button. Uh, I don't know which one converts better. would have to ask someone that's done a significant testing on all of it. It matters a lot based on your industry and what you're selling and how the customer found you. There's so many factors that you can't really say definitively this method is better than the other. There's another thing that I see happen all the time in online sales pitches, which is someone releases something and they expect everybody to just start walking in the door right then (laughs) versus being patient and essentially building up their audience, building up their customer base, all that stuff slowly and over time. And it's like a snowball rolling downhill slowly. 
that's how it really is. But I think too many people, they build something and they, they wait and they wait and they wait and they keep building out, building out, building out, wait till it's ready, all that kind of stuff. And they delay so that once it launches, they expect, they both need and expect like everybody to just start rolling in. Whereas in real life, that's just not how it is. So I think setting your expectations for getting those customers over time and starting with something smaller and building out your feature set over time as you start to earn those additional customers is both of those working together is probably a better solution than trying to build an all-in-one thing and then trying to get all the customers at once because that's just not going to happen. Yes. Focus on one niche, serve them well, then expand based on what you've learned. That is excellent advice. I have another question in terms of patience. And I buy this way, but I don't know if everybody does. And when I say that, I buy slowly. So I could hear about something 10 times before I pull a trigger. Uh, And I personally find value in marketing, especially if it's like promotional marketing. Let's say it's a podcast advertisement or a, a, a display ad, whatever it is. I might visit a website or hear about a service or whatever, 5, 10, 15 times, and then finally I'm convinced to try it. But once I pull the trigger, I'm a really good customer. You know, like I'm going to be a customer for a long time. And I think you need to be patient when you're doing marketing efforts. Let's say you're starting to blog more in order to promote your product. You need to really give that time to sink in, let people become more and more familiar with your brand and wait for a year of doing something on the regular to decide whether this was a, a good promotional activity. One top of mind right now is the way Delicious Brains has built up their blog over the past few years. They invested, I assume, a lot of company time into writing these weekly blog posts that as they became more regular, they probably had people that were visiting their blog that weren't customers. But then when they encountered the problem set that Delicious Brain solves, they've been a regular reader of Delicious Brain's blog, and then that led them to use their product. Exactly right. I'd say the majority of good customers are slow buyers. I'm the same way. And you will get customers who are ready to pull the trigger immediately. They've mm-hmm. hit a problem. They want the problem solved right now. You solve the problem Admit uh, as far as you're willing to admit. So they're going to try it out. And if it doesn't, they're also quick to get a refund and move on to the next solution until they actually find what works. Yeah. But for long-term sustainability, it is a very slow, patience-driven game of getting your name out there. And if you don't believe me, I want to ask if you've ever heard of a company named Coca-Cola or a company named McDonald's, because these are globally recognized brands that have been in business for a very long time. And they still pay insane amounts of money on marketing. They don't need to market. Everybody knows who who they are unless they stop marketing. And then suddenly Pepsi gets a foothold or Burger King or any other number of competitors can seize this opportunity of Coca-Cola has pulled out all his advertising dollars. Now, instead of this being a Coca-Cola driven stadium, it's going to be a Pepsi driven stadium. It would go away just as slowly as it built up, I would think. It would, yeah. They wouldn't disappear overnight, but they would see a dramatic shift, even just in a few percentage points of market share, if they were to give up any amount of their marketing budget. And that's probably important for WordPress products, services, whatever, 
because you could be a market market dominant player, but if you start taking that for granted, your influence and your saturation of the market will slowly go away as well. Bingo. Yep. Because there are always other people who want to rise up and have any percentage of the pie that you have. When in reality, we know that the pie is big enough to support everybody. And if we grow the pie, even the the 2% of it that you have yields more customers. But getting to going from 2% to 3% of the same size pie is just a good of a move. Uh, and this brings me to a point that I wanted to make earlier and then decided I want to make layer, later. But uh, for pricing, you have to sort of decide for yourself if you want to sell low and attract more customers or sell high and then bring more value. It's very attractive to look at something uh, I often reference the form building space, right? To build a form builder and try and attract more people who want to build forms to use your product instead. And conventional wisdom is I will set my price lower than everybody else and therefore I will get more customers. Uh, but there are two flaws in this approach. <laughs> One, most customers aren't driven by price. Price is important. And given the choice between something that's, say, $50 and $200, someone may be more likely to pick the $50 option, but not necessarily, because perhaps the $200 version provides something that's tangibly more useful than the $50 version. Um, or someone might look at it and go, what's wrong with the $50 version that they're selling it for literally 25% of what everyone else is selling? Oh, yeah. So, it's it's not uh, whether someone buys your product or not is likely not because of what you're charging. It's likely because of how you well you've stated your benefits and how well you're solving the problem. And within uh, within particular regions. So in your example, um, the 200 versus the let's 50. say 50 are not <laughs> that's that's pretty extreme. But if you saw 30 and 50, you probably would not have any problem whatsoever paying the 50 as long as that's the one that gave you the pitch that you were seeking. Right. Over the course of the year, right, if you're buying, if we're talking about buying an annual license for updates and support, that $20 is not important. Yeah. And I think what you hinted on as in addition to that is also really nice for service people to remember. My brother ran into this recently with, with contractors and they line itemed out um, cabinetry for a kitchen remodel. And two contractors that had custom cabinetry outlined in the in the quote they were like $15,000 different in the price which was a, a very significant percentage of the overall price and their question was like well what's wrong with this one that's so much cheaper <laughs> yeah yeah uh because it was like half the price or whatever of the other one in terms of the, the custom cabinetry so they they thought something was surely wrong and Sometimes I think if you're too cheap within the market that you're trying to cater to, this gets back a little bit to what we've talked about in prior episodes with consulting, you can lose the job because it's too cheap because you're trying to, to get the customer or whatever. And you're actually they clearly not. don't understand the problem space well enough. I right. can't trust them with my business. Exactly. Yeah. And, and furthermore, the customers who you're likely to attract simply because your price is lower are probably not the kinds of customers that you want to have. They're the tire kickers, the ones who are going to be a real drain on your time, who demand more. Your support while, burden is, yeah. there's a phenomenon where your support burden is much more significant with lower price products. Yep. 
it's almost invariably better for you to price the same or perhaps higher than other people already in the space to one signal that your product may be more valuable and then demonstrate that value or actually bring more value to the table uh, in order to achieve that higher price point. And we we talked on a couple, touched on a couple different things here. We should probably wind down, but I really want to get to understanding the problem space and probably also a bit on supporting customers. So you talked about the support burden thing. Why don't you talk a bit more briefly about how important supporting customers is to the overall marketing and conversion game of selling products? Yeah, so I mentioned earlier that you have these multiple funnels as a part of your whole sales process. So one is getting them to become a customer. That's like your initial funnel. Um, You have an an additional funnel, which is to get them to renew, especially in the WordPress space. Like if you have a yearly license for updates and support, you want them to renew. And that includes having a good onboarding and initiation process for the new customer, making it a good service or product itself through the application, and then providing quality support when they do have issues so that when the renewal comes up, they are willing to take that step, which is super important because uh, getting a repeat customer is significantly cheaper than getting a brand new customer. So once you've done the hard work of turning them into a customer where you might have a 1% to 3% conversion ratio, well, what if you can create a 50 to 70% renewal ratio? You've done that much more uh, effectively by repeating a customer than trying to sell to a new customer all over again. So that's a whole different and very important funnel, but that's still marketing. Like You're marketing to your existing customers, and that's very important. Bingo. The other potential drawback that exists here is if you're not supporting your customers very well, they become a very vocal group signaling to stay away from whatever it is that you're selling. So you definitely want to, as you find people and attract them, to treat them well. Yeah, and I think if you can't avoid the bad experience, like if there was just something there, I think one way to prevent the vocal minority is to be very liberal and quick with your refunds. Oh, yes. Refund as fast as you can because very unhappy people will issue a chargeback, which you will lose even if you win because you will get billed by your payment provider. And even without a chargeback, if you're just preventing them from complaining, basically. Right. Uh, even if you're if they're outside the scope of your normal refund process, it's going to cost you less money to give them their money back because just the hassle of dealing with them. And sometimes that could be permanent. Like look at Yelp reviews or something on restaurants. Like those last a long time. Or in our case, like if someone leaves a scathing WordPress plugin review on .org, if you have a freemium product, like something like that can last for a very long time. Or they blog about you if you really treated them wrong or if they, yeah. or if, even if you didn't deserve it. Like it's just going to be a pain. So do literally anything you can to prevent that, uh, even if it feels costly at the time or it feels unjust if you didn't deserve it as a service provider, plug-in provider, whatever it was. In the end, you're just going to save yourself time and energy and money um, by being liberal with the refund option. Yep. And I should add here too that don't bend over backwards for every single difficult customer that you have. There are going to be customers that you'll end up with that just aren't good customers. And no matter what you do, they're going to walk away unhappy. These aren't the kinds of people we're talking about here. Um, yeah, so you don't necessarily have to change your product or go through hours of support per week with them. Like You can just refund them and, and let, them, let them go. Yep. And you'll increase your 
profitability and your team happiness as well. Exactly. And even if they do write a scathing review in some public space, they are an outlier and there's no reason to worry about them. If they leave a, a bad review on the .org repo, you can re leave a reply to tell your side of the story if you feel compelled, which you don't even need to do that. Um, yeah. But the problem is if you create a trend of that, that's what you want to avoid like the plague. You want to make sure yeah. that that is not the A defining experience of, well, 4% of our customers go through this problem and they all leave this way. That's yeah. a problem. You can Four see customers the, who go through this. You can see when the tide deal. turns on a product too. Like I've run into this when I look at Amazon reviews. Like if I'm buying something off Amazon, I always look at the reviews. And specifically, I look at negative reviews to see if there's a, a heavy dose of a repeating pattern. Yes, so same. If, if you're buying a tripod, uh, you know, got one in front of me. If you're buying a tripod and over and over again in the negative reviews, you see the same problem coming up, which is, well, the the knob broke or whatever. Like, I'm going to be like, eh, I'm going to steer away from this one because this looks like a not insignificant number of customers that had issues with this particular knob. Yep. Um, so I'm going to choose something else. And that can be very revealing and humbling if you're on the receiving end of that. Bingo. Um, I have a question about .org. You think you're about to get into something, but my question is, do you think a free version of something is effective marketing in order to get someone to pay for, for the, uh, the one that you really want them to have? Like it a plug certainly can be. It, once again, depends on what it is you're trying to create, right? What, what problems you're solving and how much of it you can afford to give away for free versus how much you should put behind the paywall so that you're being... Um, rewarded for all of the time you're investing. Uh, for some things, absolutely. Getting, getting a free product out there that people can test is the best way to get their attention and to draw them towards whatever paid solution you're providing. For other things, definitely not. And I could get into specifics here, but I'm afraid I would open up a wormhole and we'd fall into this wonderful series of tangents. We can save that for another episode, but yeah. Uh, in general, I think it the uh, give a give yourself a smell test and say, are the people installing the free version going to be the the typical customer? Yes, that's a, a convertible customer, or am I just increase increasing my opportunities for the bad side of things of having to support something else and all that kind of stuff? Yep. In general, unless your business is already optimized to handle converting free customers. And that, by that, I mean uh, a newsletter sequence to introduce them to benefits and get them to buy, um, dedicated sales staff or person to reach out proactively and find out why a free customer is not yet a paid customer, help them to make that conversion. Um, you're likely not going to benefit enormously from offering some free tier to what you're doing. Uh, better options to provide a hosted demo of your thing that someone can experiment with for free before opening up their wallet. Not something that they can just take and use some stripped down version of whatever your thing is. Yeah, absolutely. I, before so, I interrupted you, did you have something that you were wanting to bring up? I was going to move us along uh, to understanding the problem space real quick because I figured that would okay. be a good place for us to sort of wind down. Yep, wrap it up there. Yeah. So I mentioned this comment uh, earlier 
and I forget where I first heard it, but my good friend Chris Lemma is a big proponent of marinating in the problem space. And so what this means is understanding really well what problem it is that you're trying to solve. And if you understand the problems well enough, that should inform the solution that you're actually building and therefore the benefits that you're actually selling. So it becomes very easy to not only know what product to create, but also how to package that product so that you can sell it to the people who need to buy it because you understand the problem or problems very well. Um, What's should, an example? Do you have one? Um, uh, let's go back to the quiz building demo that I threw out at the beginning, right? So the problem is that a site owner or an educator or somebody wants to provide some kind of quiz to their audience. So if it's a teacher, they want to provide, you know, a pop quiz to their students. If it's uh, a person who's providing training like me, maybe it's a quiz at the end of the lesson to see how well did you understand this stuff. And so the, the specific implementation of the quiz isn't the problem that you're solving. The problem that you're solving for them is uh, most quiz building software is difficult to use. It doesn't give you the results that you want. It's very hard to measure the feedback that you get. Like there's, there are all of these problems that exist once someone has decided they want to use quiz software. Before that, the problem is how do I get uh, appropriate amount of feedback from my audience in order to take action. And so there's a different problem, right? So we've got one problem that is how difficult is it to accomplish this task? The other thing is how difficult is it to take action on the information that I'm getting? What information do I want? And then once I'm getting it, how can I best visualize it to take action on it? Mm. So with these two problems in hand, right, you spend a lot of time thinking through these and thinking through all the different variations of, of related problems and and how big or small the problem actually is, you can say, ah, I can solve this problem by building this form tool that provides a very clean UI and makes it very simple to add a question, add responses, etc. And then for the second half, here's how we can help visualize the data so that someone can take action on it. Got it. I know what I need to make now. And now I also know how to frame it and what benefits I need to list out on my homepage. And if you spend enough time in it, you know what other players are in the space and what they're charging, um, how much the person who's your ideal candidate's time is worth, and therefore how much they're willing to spend on solving the problem. And so you can actually define not just the solution that you're building, but also what it's worth to your potential customers and charge accordingly. I have one more question. I think that was really well done. I think a lot of times people get stuck on pricing and then they feel like it's immalleable. It it can't change it. Hmm. Do you have thoughts in terms of whether you can change pricing on something that you're providing and whether that can go both directions or if you better miss in a particular direction? Yes. So pricing is very malleable. You can change your pricing every day if you wanted. The reason that most people don't is because it's very hard to measure if they're changing frequently. And so you want to sort of, as best you can, test different price points. I did this uh, somewhat unintentionally when I launched WP Sessions um, and inadvertently launched with four different price points, which was a very cool, happy accident. I knew that I wanted to test a few, but I realized I had four and that was perfect. I ended up with 
tests at 299, 249, 199, and 149 because I had the actual price and then the introductory price. And then I offered a, a discount for people who signed up for the newsletter and for people who'd been longtime customers. Um, and so the way that the, the discount laid out across that is how I got the four different price points. And it helps me to see that it actually didn't really matter within that range which price point I picked because an equal number of people were, were ready and willing to buy at that point in time um, because they liked what was coming. Which uh, allowed you to then charge the higher price. Correct. Um, when, when data points to people are willing to pay whatever, you charge the upper end uh, and optimize for fewer, better customers is, is usually what you want to do. Um, another good example of this, we go back to Backup Buddy, right? Their, their baseline package, I think, is 47 or 49 or maybe it's $67. Um, I know it's less than 100 and I'm, I can't remember if it's you know, less than 50 or, or just more than 50. That's a perfect fo- solution for someone who operates a WordPress site, right? They, they have a blog. They, want, they don't want to lose any of the writing that they've done on their blog. Or they have an e-commerce site. They don't want to lose any of the customer data from their e-commerce site. You could argue that the person running the e-commerce site, that data is far more valuable than the person who's running the blog. Maybe not. Maybe it's a very well-established blog and that content is extremely valuable to the person. So Mm -hmm. we can't really differentiate from from our point of view, is this more valuable to the e-commerce person or not? But I can guarantee to you that that backup solution is far more valuable to someone operating in the enterprise than someone who's operating their own individual site. And someone who's operating an enterprise site is going to question heavily, is this $100 product actually, no, sorry, is this $60 product worth our time. There's no way that it could possibly provide all of the stuff that we need in a backup solution and be that little. Our website itself cost a quarter of a million dollars for crying out loud. Um, So uh, in, in that scenario, if they were to build a backup solution for the enterprise, they could probably charge five figures, right, at the low end and say, like, for $10,000, we will make sure that every single thing on your site is backed up in multiple remote destinations with a very easy restoration process so that if you suffered a catastrophic failure of hardware, which would be unlikely given your infrastructure, but even if you did, all of your content is still available to you and you can get back online in record time. They could, uh, at $10,000... forego acquiring 166 customers for just one customer if they were instead selling the product for $60. Yeah, it's always worth considering, that's like next tier bracketing, uh, next level bracketing is have at least one plan or option for people to, to participate in that is so absurd because if, if it ever converts, then it's a great day. Right. Exactly. And so uh, that, that is a very extreme anecdote to suggest that uh, someone should spend more time in the problem space considering all of the potential applications of the solution that they're about to build in order to determine who the best audience is and how much, how valuable this solution is to them. Because providing backups to the enterprise can be very lucrative, but it is also an entirely different problem set in some cases than providing backups to the everyman. And the spending time in the problem space helps informs how many potential customers you have, which will let you say, 
actually, I would like to go down market and help everybody with a website because I know that I can do that better than anybody else, charge everybody $60 a piece and deliver a phenomenal experience versus targeting just a handful of enterprise clients and spending all of my time just on those, say, six or 10 or 12 or whatever. That's really worth considering for people that may be looking to pivot too. Like if they're in one part of the market and it's not working out, then they could consider moving to a whole different part of the market and give themselves an entirely different price range that may be successful where they weren't successful before. So don't be afraid to experiment, I think is a, a great way to wrap this up. With that, let's do so and call it a day. Brian, where should people go to see what's up with WP Sessions and yeah. yourself? Well, first of all, thank you, everybody, for joining us on this extended episode. We have a lot to say, turns out, on this, and even more that we didn't get to. Um, and just as a reminder, in case you forgot, because you have amnesia, because it's been so long, you've been enjoying the post-status draft podcast. Uh, you can find more of what I do with WP Sessions over at WPSessions.com or on Twitter as at WP Sessions. You can find me personally as at Risen, R-Z-E-N. And if you'd like to find out more awesome post status and WordPress community stuff, you should go to poststatus.com slash club and join the club there. In fact, I can't believe if you're listening to this and have been a listener for a long time that you haven't already joined the Post Status Club because there are almost a thousand people hanging out in Slack who have even better insights than we do, and you should join them. Plus, you get firsthand account of Mr. Krogsgaard's insights. The business channel in Slack is one of the golden nuggets of Post Status where people that are dealing with these things all the time are sharing their stories and helping each other out. I always love hopping in there. Yeah, bingo, me too. All right. We all have a good day and we will catch you next time. Yep. Bye, everybody.